listening to the podcast of East River Park Christian Church. If you'd like to find out more information about the church or donate to this ministry, please visit us at eastriverpark.church. We pray that this is an encouragement to you as you grow in Christ through the local church. Uh, process of becoming a lead pastor at a local church is never easy nor should it be a search team will go through um, hundreds of resumes there'll there'll be phone calls there there will be video calls there will be plenty of of meetings um, and my calling to be the pastor here at East River Park was really no different and while it wasn't an easy process, I'm thankful that it was a, a thorough process. And one of the specific meetings was held in the church office over there. I sat in the conference room. It's really Matthew's office right now. And the elders and the interim pastor just grilled me with questions. Questions about ministry, about theology, about methodology, about my personal life and purity, about my family. But there was one question that I would say really... Um, stuck with me over the years. The room grew quiet, and the interim pastor uh, looked him in the eyes, and he asked me, have you, have you ever experienced real tragedy in your life? And I felt like, man, that was a really awkward, odd question to bring up, and in my honesty, I, I hadn't experienced a lot of tragedy. Um, I had a pretty perfect childhood. My parents are still married. In fact, I, I still have not been uh, to a, a family funeral, which I know is crazy at my age. We uh, could be vampires. Um, that doesn't mean I haven't gone through difficult things. I have, like 100%, but there's been very few seasons of grief in my life. Looking back on that question, I realized why he asked me that, because uh, as a pastor, I deal with a lot of people that grieve over a lot of things, and it's not always easy to know how to minister to someone in grief when you have not known tragedy. So what should I do? Really, what, what should we do? As always, I, I will tell myself, and I'll tell the church, we look to the Word. Because what we will find in our passage today is a moment of tragedy and hopelessness and frustration and grieving. And it's possible that you're listening to this message and you're in that season right now. And so my plea from the passage this morning is that we might know biblical truth about God and humanity and seasons where we know grief far too well. So this is a message for those that are hurting and for those that are trying to minister to those that are hurting. We'll be in 1 Samuel, in the Old Testament, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 1. If you have a digital Bible, I'll read out of the ESV. If you have a bulletin, it's all there in your bulletin. Um, but before we begin uh, this message, this series, uh, let's pray together.
God, uh, we humbly come before you and, and, and we know that we walk in here with a lot on our plate, whether it's things that have been piled on outside of our control or things that we've honestly just done to ourselves. God, we ask that we would approach your word with a clean heart and a clean mind. God, we, we ask that we would approach your word with, with reverence and seriousness to, to study and know your truth. God, and as we uh, just look at this, this story in 1 Samuel, there will be no person untouched. Whether we are suffering or grieving or whether we're just trying to help, we're trying to, to minister to those that are. God, God, teach us uh, through this story, and we pray these things in your son's name. Amen. It's really of no surprise um, that we're beginning the book of Samuel today. In reality, First and Second Samuel are one book in the Hebrew Bible just called Samuel. It's a collection of historical events that tell one larger story, the story of God preparing, really preparing his people for King Jesus. But as we begin, there are no kings in Israel at this point. First Samuel would begin after the time of judges in Israel where a judge would be appointed over the people of God and things would go really well for a season. And then that judge would die and then the people would do what is right in their own eyes. And then a new judge would be appointed over the people of God, and things would go well for a season. That judge would die, and things would go south again. It was this never-ending cycle of faithfulness and disobedience. Faithfulness and disobedience. Truth be told, it's often a reflection of our own story, like how many times we, we find ourselves faithful and then disobedient. And we were faithful for a while, and then we're disobedient. This vicious just, just frustrating loop. What's the hope of Israel? What's the hope for us? Well, that hope continues and begins in 1 Samuel 1, the story of a baby boy that will grow up to become Israel's last judge and first prophet, the beginning of the story of Samuel. So we'll be in Samuel uh, chapter 1. We'll start in verse 1. We'll read uh, this whole story together. And then we'll walk through it together. So 1 Samuel 1, verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathim, Zophim, from the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuf, son of Zuf, and an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah. The name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah, she had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from this city to worship and to sacrifice uh, to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were priests of the Lord. And on the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions of Penina to his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her. And though the Lord had closed her womb, and her rival, she used to provoke her grievously and to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. 
So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore, Hannah wept, and she would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? Why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And after they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now, Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed, and she prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall touch his head. Verse 12. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah answered him, No, my Lord, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman for... All along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. And they went back to their house in Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The question in your notes this morning for this message is, what should you know when you grieve? See, we, we don't get too far into the story before we find the source of grief in this passage. In verses 1 through 3, we're introduced to three primary characters of this narrative. There's Elkanah. He's from uh, Ramathim, Zophim, or we can just say Rama because it says that later in the text. It's the hill country of Ephraim. Uh, the name actually means to be elevated, so it could be describing many places around Bethel. I have a map. Is it helpful? Can you see this map at all? No. Actually, no, there isn't. Where's Candy? Can we show the map real quick? Thank you, Candy. Can you see that at all? All right, cool. Well, that wasn't a waste of time. So there's the map, uh, and you can see Bethel, and you can see Shiloh. Um, So there you go. If that's helpful, there it is. Uh, we're given a glimpse of uh, Elkanah's family history. His father was Jeroram. The grandfather was Tohu. His great-grandfather was Zeph. Elkanah had two wives. Uh, not God's design. Certainly not God's intention for marriage, but due to economic and cultural issues, God allowed this for a season. But as this story will show, polygamy certainly doesn't work out too well. Doesn't make life easier, Elkanah. First wife is a woman named Hannah. Elkanah's second wife is a woman named Penina. 
And at the end of verse 2, you'll find the problem of the narrative. It appears that Elkanah had married Hannah, but she was barren. She could not have kids. And so, as was often done, Elkanah married a second woman. And so the family line could continue. And his wife gave birth to several sons and several daughters, as we see in the text. So we're given a glimpse to the drama of the story. And that drama is about to thicken. Elkanah, he's a righteous man. A good righteous man. He took his family to Shiloh every year for worship and to sacrifice to the Lord as he was directed in Deuteronomy 12. This starts in verse 5. But you shall seek the place that the Lord your God will choose out of all your tribes to put his name and make his habitation there. There you shall go, and there you shall bring your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contribution that you present, your vow offerings, your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herd and of your flock. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice, you and your households, and all that you undertake, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. So he's being faithful to the word. And then it goes up to Shiloh, where the tent of meeting was. You can see this in Joshua 18. Joshua 18, verse 1. Then the whole congregation of the people of Israel assembled at Shiloh and set up the tent of meeting. The land lay subdued before them. So the tent of meeting at this time are probably a structure of some sort, a place that held the Ark of the Covenant, a place of worship, a place of sacrifice. The family landed in Shiloh, and then we're introduced to three more characters of this narrative in verse 3. See Eli the high priest, he's getting a little too old for daily priestly activities, so he just kind of hangs out out front. And supervises some of the worship that is going on. But Eli has two sons that are also priests that run the worship. Hophani and Phinehas, two names that are uh, good to remember for a different week. But regardless, Elkanah made his sacrifices to the Lord. And during this process, it was customary to have a meal. So the wife would be given a portion of meat according to how many children she had. So Uh, Penina had plenty of kids, so she, as you see that in verse 4, so she got plenty of food to eat. What about Hannah? Well, look at verse 5. Elkanah loved her deeply, and he gave his wife double portion of food in her grief. So the first thing you need to know when you grieve is point one, if you're a note taker. Know that some people will try to help the best way they know how. That was Elkanah's heart. He loved his wife. He saw the need. He met the need. That's good to know in times of despair and tragedy. It's good to know that you have people in your life that love you, that will try their best to help the best way they know how. So I would encourage us to please not reject the love that's being shown to you from the body of Christ when you're hurting. There have been many times in ministry that the elders have found someone in deep, silent suffering because they would not receive help from those that actually love them. We had a, a lady in our last church, a um, sweet lady, uh, that laid on her couch in the frozen Midwest winter with only a space heater and got pneumonia. She did not want to bother anyone with her problems. So I understand that being vulnerable with your grief is scary, but let the church be the church. 
that we deeply love you, that we want to meet your needs the best way we can. And likewise, it's not just uh, elders or deacons' responsibility in doing that to love and to serve. It is every Christ follower. Love people in this church and see their need and meet their need, or simply, when is the last time you helped anyone in this church? It doesn't always mean money. Maybe a kind word, helping with a project, but please know that you are loved and those that love you, are they're really trying to help the best way they know how. But let's be real, people are messy, right? Have you ever, um, have you ever tried to help someone and you thought, I don't think, I don't think, this, is, I don't think this is working? Okay, now he's a good man. Not a perfect man, Hannah. She's getting ridiculed by her rival and her suffering, and rather than enjoying the meal, we see her, she just begins to weep in her grief. Here comes her clueless husband. Hannah, why do you weep? Why don't you eat? Hannah, why, why is your heart sad? I mean, he obviously cares about her. He's asking heartfelt questions. And then we get to this last question that says, am I not, am I not more to you than ten sons? Like, oof. Okay, no, like, I could have I told you not to say that one. I, I mean, I could have told you that comment was about to backfire. I mean, maybe he said it thinking about Jacob and Rachel and her ten sons. Maybe he said it because he meant it. Regardless, he said it because he thought it would be helpful. You and I need to know that people will say and do a lot of helpful things when we are hurting and grieving, and people will also say and do a lot of painful, uh, painfully foolish things when we are grieving. You and I need to know that those same people, are, are, they're just trying to help the best way that they know how. When my wife and I were struggling to have kids, um, people would say the absolute craziest things to us because they thought, it was, they, would, they thought it was helpful. And it used to make me so mad to hear some of their in, insane comments, but I finally realized that most of them just really loved us, and in their love, they, they were just trying to help the best way they knew how. So it's worth stating, husbands, your wife, my wife, doesn't need uh, us to answer her problems and her grief. That's Elkanah's failure. Your wife needs you to listen and grieve with her. Really, for anyone, just listen and grieve with others, 99% of the time, we only need to give feedback when it is asked of us. But you need to know, people really do love you. They're doing the best they can to help. Some of it will be helpful. Some of it not so much, but they still love you. What should you know when you grieve, point two? Know that some people will try to push you down even further. Quickly, as was referenced before, Penina was not kind to Hannah. Looking at verse 6, she's called Hannah's rival. She would taunt her relentlessly just to irritate her. And 
think of how, like how sad and evil that is, but we live in a world that is often sad and evil, and the truth is some people will see your suffering and, uh, and mock you for it. Or some people will be happy that your life isn't going well. And I, I, obviously it's dark to think like that, but I, I'm pretty sure most of us in this room, we've seen someone suffering and thought, glad that's not me. So how easy it is to be that kind of, uh, to have that kind of selfishness, you need to know that not everyone loves you. Some people don't care about you. Some people are actively rooting against you. Some people will try to push you down even further into grief because the more they can make you sink, the better they think they can think about their own sad self-existence. What do we do about that? I know this context is speaking about persecution, uh, but I, I think it's helpful for us to read 1 Peter 3, starting in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. It is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Hannah exemplified this posture. Rather than lashing out at her rival, she ran to the Lord. Look at verse 9. Hannah went to the temple of the Lord, and Eli, as mentioned, he's sitting on guard. And in her distress, she just begins to pray, and she begins to weep, and she, she didn't fight for her honor. She didn't stay at the dinner table and slander the wickedness of Penina. She ran to the temple and prayed in her distress. And as she's praying, Eli, the man on guard, he's just, he's just watching. I mean, he wasn't born yesterday. He knows what's going on. This, this woman, she's an emotional train wreck. Her lips are moving. No voice was heard, of course. This woman, she's drunk. What should you know when you grieve, point three? Know that some people will misunderstand your grief. If anyone should have known what Hannah was doing, it should have been the experienced priest of Israel. But as verse 14 shares, it says, how long are you going to be drunk? Put away that wine. Truth is, not everyone is going to understand what you're going through. In fact, some people might think less of you in your grief. And if I can be really transparent, um, ministry can create a really jaded soul. Eli, he, like he didn't imagine this scenario. If I was a gambling man, I bet he had seen this all the time. Wine was certainly flowing in the, during the religious festivals. Ministry and life can make you really jaded and callous towards those that are hurting. If I can be really transparent, I, I sometimes see people suffering and think, what'd they do to deserve that? And that's not right. I shouldn't think that way, but I realize why Eli did. He didn't, 
care about her heart or her story. We just reacted to what was going on in the exterior, and people are going to misunderstand your grief. People are going to make assumptions about the cause of your suffering. If she was drunk, yeah, he had every right to kick her out. But it wasn't the case, so let us be very careful that we don't assume the worst in someone without hearing their story first. And I'm preaching to myself in that. So often, grief will go misunderstood. But again, listen to her posture in verse 15. I mean, it's not anger. She didn't snap back at Eli. In her humbleness, she began to explain her story. No, no, my Lord. Troubled in spirit. I'm not drunk. I'm I'm not pouring out wine, but my soul before the Lord. Please don't view your servant like that. I'm praying to the Lord in my anxiety, and I'm praying to the Lord in my anger. That's why Hannah was there, not to hide from drama, but to bring her suffering to the only one who could do anything about it. What should you know when you grieve? Point four. Know that humble prayer actually matters. It actually matters. There's something special about Hannah. She prays in verse 11, O Lord of hosts, the first time we hear that title of Yahweh in the Bible. She prays the humble word servant seven times. She prays a Nazarite vow in verse 11 that her child will be given to the service of the Lord and no razor will touch his head. She prays with, with this deep honesty of her emotions. She tells the Lord of hosts about her anxiety, about her anger. Prayer actually matters when grief punches you in the face because one day it will. Where will you turn? Do you turn to Google? Like, I'm just searching the internet for answers. Do you turn to advice from friends, just listening to friends that oftentimes don't even love the Lord? Do you turn to alcohol, like just trying to numb your pain? Hannah turned to the Lord in prayer, and she poured out her soul to the Lord. Know that prayer is not a waste of time in your grief, and and I don't know how this fits into your theological box this morning. But sometimes we, we don't have something because we've, we've just not prayed for it. James 4, verse 1, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask, you pray, but you don't receive because you ask wrongly, so you can spend it on your own passions. Humble prayer actually matters. And yet, look at what she does at the end of verse 18. It seems so simple of a description, but it is profound. Eli, he he blesses her. She responds with your servant, finds favor in your eyes as a play of the meaning of her name. And then she got up, went back, ate the food she couldn't eat earlier, and her face was no longer sad. 
Hannah prayed and she left it with the Lord. And then she carried on with her life. What a missing component in our grief to wallow in our grief after we've brought it before the Lord is to not trust in the goodness of the Lord. Give your suffering to God and then carry on. And maybe you got to do that a hundred times. Just don't forget to carry on. Go out in public. Eat some food. Smile. Enjoy what you can. But don't forget to keep living the life that God has given you. Don't waste your life in grief. That's not what Hannah did. My wife and I, we sat at the doctor's office in the suburbs of Chicago. The doctor, uh, he showed us a a three-column chart of our options. And each option would cost us more money, money we didn't have. And each option would get us closer to having a child. And I knew how deeply my wife wanted to be a mother, and I knew how deeply I wanted to be a dad. And we, yeah, for sure, we grieved in different ways than that. Um, We prayed for a child. We wanted to start a family. It was so frustrating uh, to see our friends enter this new stage of life. When we weren't, we got married when I was 21, and she was 19, and after seven years of marriage, it just felt, to me at least, it felt like we were newlyweds without kids, and I I was frustrated. So we, we prayed, and it would just drive me crazy when people would quote scripture at me in my grief, or bring up stories in the Bible of infertility. Like, I hated that. God didn't promise us a child. We grieved and we hurt and we felt empty and yet the Lord was doing something neither of us could see and as most of you all know, I've mentioned it a lot, we adopted uh, Ezra and Eliza from the NICU. Two years later, we had our youngest boy, Judah, a surprise. Of course, she had never been pregnant. Um, and then there comes Judah and, and what I realize more so now is our summary point today. Know that God is sovereign over all. God is over all and he's in control of all things. Here's the truth that might make you really uncomfortable today. It was the Lord that made Hannah barren. Verse 5, the Lord closed her womb. Verse 6, the Lord closed her womb. God is even sovereign over our grief and suffering. It wasn't science or sin that closed Hannah's womb. It was the Lord. God is sovereign over all. Well, then, like, what's he up to? If he's in control of all things, what's the outcome? Well, verses 19 through 20 reveal the answer to prayer. Because when they got home, Hannah was pregnant with her, became pregnant with her baby boy. She named him Samuel. She said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The answer to prayer and grief. And yet, I think there were probably many uh, barren, God-fearing women in Israel that never had kids. And I have friends that prayed for years to have children, and the Lord has not given children to them, and yet there are many that we love, um, And suffering 
and grief that doesn't seem to end. So what is God up to? Here's the truth and here's the hope of Israel and the hope for us today. The sovereign God chose an infertile woman from Ramah to continue to unfold his plan of redemption. For Hannah will have Samuel. Samuel will anoint David as king of Israel. David will point us to the king that we've always needed. For it was from the tribe of Judah, David's own, that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, just a little south of Ramah. It's King Jesus that has come and will come again to eradicate all grief and suffering for his children. Colossians 1, verse 17. Speaking of Christ, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God is sovereign over all. And Christ has made and is making peace by the blood of his cross. So friends, for those that are in Christ, and yeah, that is a stipulation. For those that are actually in Christ, your grief has an end date. If you want to talk about anything, so far in this series or questions about 1 Samuel. I'd love to talk with you. just want to pray. We'll pray, but um, let's pray and then we'll sing a closing song together.